You know, Dan, as I've gotten older, I get much of my news on the line. And recently, I've been reading about this Web 40 and the TFNs and those types of things. I'm fascinated by it. Yeah, you know what's pretty fascinating, guy? That you literally missed Web 1 and Web 2. We're only on Web 3 right there. This is a decentralized web that's coming to shores near you. You're not even going to be on the line. You're going to be in the line. You're going to be in the metaverse here. So what are we doing here, guy? Risk Reversal Media, we're launching a new podcast. We're almost one year in on the tape with you, myself, and Danny Moses. But we had this idea to focus on technology. We're spending more and more time with tech and our lives, with tech and our business. I think coming out of this pandemic, we've all probably become too familiar with tech and we all have this really complicated relationship with tech. So we're starting OK Computer. It's OKAY Computer. It's an exasperated OK, all right? And it's going to be a podcast on all things technology. We have an amazing group of co-hosts and contributors who are going to be joining me each week. The podcast is going to drop on Wednesday. I have Rick Heitzman of Firstmark Capital. He's an investor, actually, in Risk Reversal Media. He's a good friend of both of ours, plus the brilliant Katie Stanton, VC at Moxie Ventures out in Boulder, Colorado, former operator all the way back at Yahoo Finance, then to Google, then to Twitter, and even in the Obama White House. Packy McCormick of Not Boring Capital. He is, I think, one of the foremost thought leaders in Web3. He writes the Not Boring newsletter, and he runs a VC firm of the same title. He's also an advisor to Andreessen Horowitz. And then we have a group of contributors. Meltem Demirs, she's been on our podcast a bunch from CoinShares. Jared Dicker's also been on the podcast. Jared is at the Churning Group. He's leading investments in Web3. We have our good friend Sally Shin, who just joined United Masters, who's going to do a lot of cool things in Web3 based on the creator economy as it relates to music. And then Cleo Abram. I can't wait for people who are listeners of ours to get to know Cleo. Cleo's at Vox Media. She is a brilliant video producer, and she's also just a monster on TikTok. She does great, great stuff. So OK Computer, every week we're going to break down the biggest, biggest topics in tech as it relates to private markets, public markets. Our group of co-hosts and contributors are going to be adding into the dialogue on that. And then we're going to have a really a group of A-list guests coming on, and we're going to learn about a lot of new companies, a lot of new technology. That's it, Guy Adami. That's what OK Computer is going to be all about. That is a formidable lineup, not unlike the 1927 Yankees dubbed Murderer's Row. I'm impressed by that. And obviously, OK Computer is a playoff one of two things. Obviously, a Wyatt Earp thing, which I don't think it is, or that great Metallica song, which I really loved, Dan Nathan. And it wasn't a song. It was Radiohead's 1997 album, OK. It's OK, so don't sue us here, people. But, you know, that album was really interesting because it was a real shift for Radiohead. I know, Guy, you were tracking it pretty closely back then. But they went into this kind of whole electro rock thing. And, and a lot of the themes in that album were about this kind of oncoming tech dystopia that we might be in for. And I like to think backwards now. It was almost like the soundtrack for Black Mirror, you know, that series on Netflix about all the issues that tech is going to be causing us in the future. So to me, we got a little play on that, but it's also, hey, okay, boomer guy. When I think of that term, okay, boomer, I think of you here. So we're going to have a little bit of that. I hope you're going to be popping on. A lot of our friends from the Risk Reversal Media family hopefully will be popping on, and this is going to be really exciting. I'm really fired up for it. I'm looking forward to it as well. I will play the role of the OK Boomer. And I love Jessica Lang in Black Mirror. She does some of her best work. It was either King Kong or Black Mirror for Jessica Lang. But I will tell you, not only will I be a participant 
of OK Computer. But I will be a listener, Dan Nathan, as well. All right, fair enough. Okay, Boomer. Well, listen, thank you guys for listening to this. What we're going to do right here in this episode is our first episode of OK Computer. We're going to take clips of all of those aforementioned co-hosts and contributors from episodes of On the Tape that we've had, and we're going to give you a little taste of what they have to offer here. We're really excited that these people have joined us in our mission here, so please enjoy. So here's a clip from my conversation with Rick Heitzman, founder of First Mark Capital. He is a storied private market investor in the technology space. He was the first institutional investor in Pinterest. Here's what Rick had to say. I'm really interested in the SPAC stuff because I think it's kind of flipping the script on a lot of things that's gone on between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. And so I, you know, I'd love to know, like, what, what did you learn about this last year, right? You, you launched this SPAC and it's a very different, you know, we talked about uh, the processes or the common threads kind of, you know, is that the case? But now there's a, there's hundreds of SPAC groups looking for targets right now. And on fast money, we love talking about new companies coming to market and that sort of thing, but it's very different than, startup companies that are looking to challenge incumbents. It's a much more mature thing. What did you learn about that process? And what do you think right now are we going to have, what are we going to see in the next year or so? Are we going to see tons of companies coming to market, to the public markets that should or should not be there in your opinion? So when we started our process, we were early investors in DraftKings. And part of our process was partnering with Jason Robbins, a founder and CEO of DraftKings. And he was part of our founding group and our board of directors to say, for private companies, there has to be a better alternative than the traditional IPO to get into the public markets. Is there a better way to communicate with your investors, your customers? Is there a cleaner way to be able to tell your story? And is that a more beneficial way to go public than a traditional IPO or a direct listing? And we thought, yes, this is a much more eloquent solution for a certain group of companies. And I think that you know every type of public financing has its own customer base of direct listing, traditional IPO, or a sponsored IPO or SPAC. So those are all different things. And then we went to market a little over a year ago. We were unique. We're early on the trend. And then everybody except my dog and, and Guy got a, had a SPAC in, in the, six months later. You know, you saw this being the new hot thing and probably more Wall Street than Silicon Valley piling on to if some was good, more is better. And you quickly saw everything spike and anything that goes up must come down. So then you saw kind of all this this entire product line and these investors kind of fall into the trough of disillusionment. That initially someone comes up with an idea, everyone gets excited about the idea, it gets overblown, and then everybody hates on the idea. And I think we're, we've gone through that, and that was maybe the tale of the first quarter and the second quarter where, you know, SPACs are interesting, they're good, but they're not the answer to everybody's problems all the time. And now as we're entering the fourth quarter, we're seeing, oh, okay, maybe it's not everything bad and maybe it's not everything good. Maybe just like every other product, there's a good product market fit for some customers and some companies, and it's not for everybody. So you're, so you're seeing the market kind of shuffle itself out. You're also seeing a big gap between SPACs that are serial issuers who know how to get deals done, who have access to independent capital to get pipes done, and you're seeing folks who can't. And I think as the folks who can't are kind of running long in the tooth, and most SPACs have two years after going public to get a deal done, I think you're going to see some odd behavior, and that may or may not affect their stock price in the public markets. But you're going to see some, you know, lack of a better term, death throes from some of those companies. But I think you're going to see the product line persist as it, it does fit a lot of different structures and a lot of different companies. 
All right, let's bring it back to like a fast money question that sure. if you were on with us, we might ask yeah, you. So, ahead, so, so, well, let's say Frame.io. Okay, so this company just sold to Adobe, which is a massive, obviously, SaaS company here for $1.3 billion. I have to assume, and this goes back to kind of some of your commentary about SPACs, that they were a SPAC candidate, but they chose to go with a strategic, a big strategic buyer here. How do you think about that sort of thing? I'm sure you're seeing all different portfolio companies of yours have to evaluate all these different things. Why did do you think that deal made sense for them to go with a strategic? And are we about to see big strategics like Adobe um, start to gobble up a lot of things? Interest rates are still relatively low. They've come up. There's a lot of cash around in the system. These companies um, have benefited a great deal. They've been buying back their cash. They, they got great balance sheets. Is this going to be uh, an interesting period for m and I think the world's changed a little bit for maybe even five years ago. And there's so many different alternatives to finding liquidity if you're either a founder or an early stage investor. Obviously, you have the classic IPO. You have direct listings. You now have sponsored IPOs or SPACs. You've always had M&A. But because of the capital in the system, you're seeing a lot more secondary opportunities. So that's another lever for you to get liquid, especially if you're a founder. So often founders are not in a rush to, to get liquid because they've been able to take some chips off the table along the way. But as you get closer to that point, you're growing your business, you have a critical mass of people and revenue, and obviously a market-leading product, you're approached by people who it makes a lot of sense. So Frame.io is a collaboration platform around video. And if you think about Adobe, which owns things like Photoshop, what's the next generation of, of creative and artistic tools, the next generations around video? It's less one-to-one, like most software is. It's going to be much more collaboration. And that could be around video or audio, as we see even here today. So th- that's where the world's going. And obviously, there's a tremendous strategic fit. It was one of the highest multiples paid for a software company in New York's history. And I think that shows what a good strategic fit it is. But also from the standpoint of the founder and the CEO, you want to see that vision realized. And if you're Emory at Frame and you're talking to the creative cloud at Adobe where almost everybody has it on their desktop, you're talking about the Behance community, you want to see your full product vision realized and you want to see that your product's in the hands of every creator and what you originally envisioned of this being an important widespread products there. And therefore, you could be part of you know getting your product out more broadly to market. So I think not only was it a good strategic fit from Adobe's perspective, but there was also a great fit from the founder's perspective in their ability to not only realize value for their employees, their investors, and themselves, but also realize the company's vision. So you know, you've had some tremendous success and some Web 2 sort of names. And I would say that that Frame.io fits that kind of genre, if, if you will. What are some of the themes that you guys are starting Starting to think about now. I know that you made some investments in crypto. Um, are there some kind of decentralized, kind of creator-based sort of things in Web three? I think that's what the kids are calling it, right, Guy Adami? Um, yeah. yeah, uh, guys all over the Dallas. <laughs> yeah, no, I love the Web three. I'm, I'm, but I'm holding out for the later version. No, but it's interesting, three Rick. You just mentioned a DAO, a decentralized yeah. autonomous organization. I, I keep hearing about new ideas, new companies that are being formed, and they're not really companies, and they're being governed by DAOs. And does that disrupt the VC model? And is it something that you're spending more and more time on? We're spending time on things that could be disruptive to ourselves or or to the market on the whole. So, I mean, DAOs have everybody, that's exactly what it is. Everybody has a different take on, therefore, what does that mean? And I think we're still early in how, how, call it Web 3.0 communities are formed, governed, and managed. 
And I think that there'll be part of it that will continue like that, obviously picked up by the crypto and the blockchain communities early and out of the box. So we're thinking about that, how that could disrupt the company formation and capital formation processes. You know, last, as you talk about Web 2.0, I think it was the beginning of, of kind of the networked economy. And whether that's Frame.io collaborating on video or Airbnb having a marketplace of places to stay that disrupt traditional lodging, we've participated across that. As we look forward, though, we, you know, it could be DAOs and it could be crypto and it could be blockchain where we've made several bets on whether that's – and I know, Dan, you're a big helium miner. I so we could uh, – <laughs> and the helium ecosystem for a decentralized internet – but we also think about, you know, what are the next generation of consumer products? I know you're also a big customer of Roe. So Roman Health and being able to provide a direct-to-consumer health experience. And, you know, even as we think about further advantages of a networked uh, commercial and enterprise economy with things like a decentralized finance. Back in early October, I was out in Boulder, Colorado. I had the opportunity to sit down with Katie Stanton. She is the founder and general partner of Moxie Ventures. She just launched her second fund out there. We talked all things about her career as a operator within the tech space. We also hit her time in the Obama administration. But here's a little clip of our conversation talking about the differentiation and the focus of her fund, Moxie Ventures. Give us the 411 on Moxie. Why did you do it? What is your differentiation? You're here in Boulder, an amazingly entrepreneurial sort of place, right? It um, is, yeah. Is that part of the inspiration, the move here too, to kind of get bigger? And Boulder was random. Yeah, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so I can explain that. But Moxie wasn't. So what happened was I had been an active angel investor, had invested in 40 companies, and I thought I should do this full time. Yeah. And obviously, I should just join a VC. And I started talking to my friends in VC, and they were like, don't join VC. You know what you're doing. You just need money. And you also need courage. Go for it. What's holding you back? And I thought about it. I'm like, I think they're right. And that's why I called it Moxie. Like, I yeah. need to have the guts and the courage to do this. But it is scary. Any founder journey is very scary. You don't want to fail. You don't know how much you can raise. Yeah. You don't know how successful you'll be or not. And so I went out and started talking to a lot of people I admire, including Chris Saka, who yeah. also read me the Riot Act, why I should do this. Yeah. So thank you, Chris. And raised $25 million by myself and realized that I wanted to be part of a positive difference. I wanted to make sure I had agency over the deals that I was backing, the founders I was backing, and backing missions that I thought made life or work better. And so I do believe profit and purpose can coexist, and we don't have enough proof points. And so I wanted to be able to be part of that equation. And so I've been very privileged and fortunate to be able to find all these amazing founders for Moxie One. I think we have 28 companies in the portfolio today. And there are a range of some enterprise, some fintech, some health tech. The category I'm spending the most time is in climate tech because I think it's our most urgent problem. I'm not a scientist and this is not a climate fund, but I think all of us can be part of the solution somehow. And then fund two... I'm also very lucky to now have a partner based in Boulder named Alex Redder. He's someone I worked with at Google and at Twitter, who's a software engineer. He led all of engineering at Twitter. And he's also a pilot and was president of Kitty Hawk, obviously, oh. <laughs> random. And Alex and I have been sharing a lot of deal flow over the years. And he's just a very clear thinker. He's very technical. And so we're going to build Moxie 2 together. And we're also hiring a principal. If anyone's interested, let me know. <laughs> Slide into my DMs, looking for someone younger and cooler than both of us. But same principles. So things that make life and work better, things that help heal our planet, early stage, anything before the A, whatever that means. Yeah. I've heard pre-seed, seed plus, pre-A, whatever it is, yeah. it has to be early. 
it sounds like you have a different mission. You're focused on founders who are underrepresented as access to capital and access to resources, that sort of thing. You're focused on, it doesn't seem like you're solely focused on climate tech. What is the differentiating factor that you and Alex bring when you're going to line up with some founders here and try to invest in lead rounds? And what are some of the things that differentiate you guys? I think the biggest thing is that we're operators by background. We have built and scaled companies and we've been around many blocks that we have a pretty good network. And so the key things, the common things that all of our founders need help with versus hiring. Is this the right job spec? How do I recruit? How do I close these different candidates? Because it's very competitive. Mm-hmm. A second common thing that they all need, especially those in enterprise that go to market. How do I set pricing? How do I build a sales team? How do I meet the head of customer success at ABC company? Mm-hmm. And so we have a lot of those relationships and we have a lot of those experiences. And maybe the last thing is that we're very honest and we care deeply. And this is our life's work right now. We're so excited to bring our collective experiences and networks to help benefit all of our founders. Let me ask you this, though. When you think about some of these missions that you're focused on, I was at Code last week and Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, was there and Stephanie Rule from MSNBC and Kara Swisher, obviously, of Recode were interviewing Mark and they were really kind of pressing him. He likes to kind of tweak the Facebook crew there and Zuckerberg in particular. And it was a really interesting conversation because they were talking about trust and safety and regulation and all this sort of stuff. And the Wall Street Journal had that really exhaustive, what they were calling the Facebook files at the time. So each day they were doing over the last, let's say, week and a half, a new report based on leaked documents. And some was about what Insta is doing to teens and all that sort of stuff. It just seems like one thing after another here. I kind of think that Facebook and Guy has said it on many occasions, and we're going to talk about it on OK Computer a lot. They're going to fall under ESG investing very soon. So I'm just curious how you think about that as you're investing. And what do you think about some of these large incumbents? Remember, it's like do no evil, but it seems like all they're doing is a lot of evil as it relates to our democracy and our health. It's a really interesting debate. And I think a lot of companies, they're well-intentioned at the beginning. And then all of a sudden they get investor pressure and then maybe they get public market pressure. And then they start skimming on the edges and think like, well, we're doing this still because we want to grow. And they justify it somehow. Maybe we're employing more people or providing better investor returns, blah, blah, blah. You can talk yourself into anything, right? And so we don't really call it trust and safety, but I think Mark is generally thematically right. We think about The companies we back, they do no harm and they have to be climate positive, for example. So we don't invest in things like DTC. We would obviously never invest in fossil fuels. Like we're trying to make sure that things are going to help heal our planet. It's going to help us reduce our carbon emissions somehow. I was lucky at Twitter that I work with some of the best trust and safety people. Mm -hmm. So Del Harvey, who still leads trust and safety and Vijagade, who's the chief legal counsel. They are so high integrity and very thoughtful. I don't know the Facebook team at all, but clearly they're doing it wrong. And this is not a great outcome for billions of people, as you see fake news spread and all the different things that are occurring. And I haven't read the Facebook files. It's one of my plans this weekend because I'm very curious about it, but that's been a real shit show to watch. Back in mid-November, I had the opportunity to speak with Packy McCormick at Zeta Live. I really wanted to start the conversation very simply. What the heck is Web3? Here's Packy on that. The Web3 definition is still kind of wide open. People are interpreting it in different ways, which is really exciting. The one that I've been using is that it's the next evolution of the internet owned by the people who build and use it, orchestrated by tokens. And so there's a lot of buzzwords in there. But essentially what it means is that if, you know, Web 1.0 was kind of the read-only version of the internet, you'd go to a website, you'd read some things. 
Web 2.0 is read-write. You can go onto Facebook. You can easily contribute. Kind of the trade-off that you made in Web 2 was you know, really hard. I couldn't send a newsletter like I send now in Web 1 because I'm not technical enough to build on SMTP. Web 2, centralized entities came in and made it really, really easy to do all sorts of stuff. The exchange, obviously, was that you gave up your data, you logged into sites, you didn't own the content that you created in a lot of different cases. Web 3, ideally, is a combination of the convenience of Web 2.0, except for that people own the content they contribute, they own their own data, they have it in their wallet, and they can bring it with them across the internet. In Web 2, if you log into Uber, my Uber activity kind of remains within Uber. If I log into the Domino's app, my Domino's activity remains within the Domino's app. Maybe you can buy credit card data and whatever else. When you log into time with your wallet, time can see all of the digital assets that you own. And so what I think will happen over time is that people are going to develop analytics around evaluating a wallet when someone comes to a site and creating a unique experience based on what that person owns. That could be NFTs, that could be certain tokens that they own. And so you can really start to target based on where this person has proven by putting money towards it that they really, really care. And so I think that's going to be really interesting, that that everybody has an inventory that they bring with them across the internet. Aki, I've been reading Not Boring, his newsletter. I'm sure a lot of you guys read it. And really, it started out as the intersection of Web3 and and all these other platforms that have come before it. And then at some point, there was an inflection for you where you just went all in. So it started out as a passion, right? You were a former entrepreneur, an investor. But at some point in 2021, a switch flipped in your mind and you've just been nonstop on this. And it sounds like, and we're going to get to this Constitution Dow, you get tripped up all the time because new interesting stuff pops up on discords. Maybe it's timepieces, maybe it's other ones, and you just get sucked in, right? Mm -hmm. So for you, how did you go from Web3 writer, pontificator to like practitioner? in the NFT space, and you're kind of all in here. Yeah, I'm all in. So I would say in January is really when I wrote my first essay on Web3. And at the time, I was like, I think the audience is going to think this is very weird. But I'm seeing this thing happen where particularly when you think about gaming and the fact that people are paying the game or the studio or whoever the owner of the game is to buy digital items. And then if they stop playing the game, those digital items no longer have any worth. What if you could just sell digital items that then you could sell back to the community or sell back to somebody who wants it at the end or who give you special privileges in a game. And then in other game worlds, what does that world look like? And so I was just kind of exploring that kind of intersection and what happens to the value chain when people have ownership of their digital assets. And really what happens is that more value accrues to the creators and then more value accrues to the consumers. And so that was really fascinating to me, but I was like, all right, I'm going to write about Web3 once, and then I'm going to write about Web3 once a month, and then I'm going to write about Web3 <laughs> twice a month, but I'll still do some non-Web3. <laughs> and now I'm yeah. tweeting about Web3 every 15 <laughs> minutes. And it's so fascinating. I think to your point, it's really easy to get shiny object syndrome in the space. So I, I think probably to the, the audience here, if you're, if you're thinking about it through the lens of marketing, my suggestion would be figure out how you can authentically interact with Web3 in a way that makes sense for your brand. Because otherwise, if you just go chase everything that happens, it's going to be a really confused and muddled message. Interesting. Uh, you know, Packy in August, I think it was, you wrote a post called Nifty Corporates. And it was right after Visa had spent $150,000 for a crypto punk. And it really set off the marketing world, at least from where I sit, like on fire. And they probably got millions, maybe tens of millions of dollars of free marketing around that. And then Budweiser jumped in. And so I think Keith's point about authenticity is interesting because I think initially when people saw that tweet or that headline, they were very skeptical. And then they're thinking about it differently in this new kind 
kind of ethos. You had a quote in Nifty Corporates, Packy, that the internet changed how products were sold, are sold, that sort of thing. Web3 is going to change what products are sold. And so explain that a little bit to this crowd, because I think that's a really important distinction. Sure. So yeah, I think the, the point of that piece was, you know, Visa had just come in and bought this crypto punk for $150,000. And what turned out to be, to your point, one of the most brilliant marketing moves of all time. It actually was authentic to them, even though it's, you know, coming in and, and buying an asset that is non-Visa related at all, because I think there's a lot of hope in the crypto community that Visa and Ma- MasterCard and the, cor- the card companies are going to get on board with crypto, and that's going to be a really big unlock. So them coming in is a really good sign. But you can only buy a CryptoPunk and make a splash like that once. And so then Budweiser comes in and does something a little bit more authentic. And I wrote about the challenges there. They opened up the bud.eth wallet and people were sending them pictures of you know inappropriate things in their wallet. So it's a brave new world if you're going to go out there uh, and experiment. But you know, the, the nice thing was that they didn't come and just try to do a CryptoPunk. They did a Budweiser themed NFT mm-hmm. that somebody had made that you collected this different rocket. And so they saw that that happened organically and they came in and engaged. What I mean when I say that it changes kind of what can be bought, I really do think that it opens up the playing field where you can sell digital assets to your biggest fans. So now if you sell a product, that product has a price point. That price point is meant to reach as many people as possible at the highest profit as possible. But you're still leaving out a big group of fans who are willing to pay a lot more to engage authentically with the brand. I think time proves this really well that you know if you want to join the community, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to get access to certain events, there are people who are willing to pay a lot of money to you to be able to do that. So there is this whole kind of universe of digital assets that you're able to sell and price discrimination is maybe the, the wrong term, but you are able to kind of say like, hey, there's this group of a thousand passionate fans. What can we build for them digitally that would create an amazing experience that then, you know, at some point if they want to sell it, they have their out as well. Over the course of this year, as we all do, we follow a lot of people on the Twitter. I got to know Jared Dicker from his nonstop tweets about the differences between Web 2 and Web 3. I had to get to know this guy. We've become fast friends. He joined the Churning Group to lead investments in Web 3. It's my pleasure to sit down and talk with Jared. Here's a little clip for you. What is Web3 investing and has there been a focus at a firm like Chernin prior to this? I know that Chernin has had a tremendous amount of success investing, let's call it, in Web2. How did this arrangement come about? How did you get focused on investing in these sorts of platform protocols, applications, whatever you want to call it, at the Chernin Group? I'd say, first off, what's most interesting about the term Web3 is that I think it's finally shifted all of the different components that were happening in crypto and blockchain into this larger, more digestible cultural phenomenon. We talked about crypto for so long and everyone kind of tethered that to finance and it was very difficult for new entrants to get involved because they just had this assumption as to what it was and what it meant. And whether it was done directly or indirectly, many moved to the term blockchain because look, it wasn't just about tokens and and crypto, but it's about the technology and the technology is really what the value is. And over the past, I think, few months, even though many of us have been saying it for three or four years, the term Web3 has really become this marketing angle. And it's in fact genius as being like the most inviting way to get people to really think about this new frontier and how all of these things come together and push forward. And for me, I'd say from an investment point of view, what Web3 really unlocks is very clear. I think it's really a focus on active consumption and active participation, which is definitely 
very new from an incentive point of view versus Web 2, right? I think in Web 2, yes, we started building social graphs and connected with friends and would be able to do things more on demand, but it was very reliant on programming. Like when you would sit down and watch Netflix, right? You want experts to tell you what's great and directors to be directing it and Spotify the same, $10 or whatever it is now, they keep charging more every year, but like 10 to $12 a month to get all the music in your pocket. Like that is great passive consumption experiences. And the main focus of Web3 is people want to do more. They don't want to be necessarily restricted by both physical and corporate confinements. And Web3 is leaning in on this idea that everyone can be a part of everything and more deeply participate, whether that is as an investor, being a fan and now becoming a producer, being able to own assets and manage those assets. So we look at it, at least from the consumer point of view, as this next evolution for unlock of consumer not necessarily having to be binary, like beating or replacing existing platforms or communities, which I think arguably are thriving more than ever, but more so bringing in this new foundational construct that really thinks about how people could do more and lean in more if they had the option to do so. So in Web2, Jared, obviously some of the killer apps were user-generated content, and those centralized platforms really were the ones that benefited for the most part. So is this extension now, is it really about creators flexing a little bit? And how do they actually flex against some of these big centralized platforms, right? As you're thinking about different angles to invest in, they have to, at some point, though, take some market share, don't they, from some of these centralized platforms? Yeah, it really kind of starts with the process. So much of the dialogue right now around Web3 because it just is so fascinating is around $150,000 crypto punks or you know the purchasing of NFTs or the contribution of DAOs and those are very individual product focused examples of what web3 is starting to enable but for web3 to really go full steam ahead it really starts to not just become a product but it's part of the process right it's people as they're creating things online whether that's a video or a song and whether you're the creator or you're the consumer, putting things on Web3 should be the first path to publish. I.e. like if I am putting a video on Facebook or YouTube today, I would just upload it. I'm bound by their terms and services and the revenue models reflect that. Well, what if there's a world where the systems are set up where before you put that IP out into the world, you put it on chain and then you're able to kind of manage the permission and the masters and the royalties of how that IP could be used and how it could be distributed and what the kickbacks are in that relationship. And that's where I think we really start to see these things blend a lot more. Right now, it is very black and white. You have options to create content and leverage distribution and put it on these platforms where very little is going back to the creators and the fans and consumers are effectively not earning much, if anything. And you have this other side with companies that are launching like Royal and music and you know what we see with OpenSea where creators are building on these native Web3 platforms and they're earning the value directly. Their fans are able to get commercial rights and they're actively trading and this ecosystem seems way more kind of creator and consumer friendly. And I think there ends up becoming a bridge as we move 
from product to process where if the tools are there and the experience is easier, you know, in fact, like eventually seamless, as people start to put things online, they're going to want to have provenance and proof of ownership of those assets. So I believe in a world where we eventually evolve to leveraging those distribution systems because they are important if audiences are on YouTube or on Spotify or elsewhere. But that path and process to publishing starts with putting things in Web3, which gives that ownership back to that original creator and allows them to set terms and values for not just their success, but also their their fan or consumer success. So Jared, I know you were following this pretty closely. This Constitution DAO, this decentralized autonomous organization, they raised over $40 million in an attempt to buy one of the remaining copies of the U.S. Constitution at auction versus Sotheby's. And the speed in which they did it and the coordination in which they did it, and they were not successful, how is that rapid capital formation in a decentralized manner, how has that changed the way that you think about raising capital, deploying capital, you're a VC now? I think there's two angles, or I guess like two things to take from that. One of which is, I think as an investor in this space, it really is a lot less about capital now. There is an abundance of capital, whether that's coming from traditional VC firms or people investing directly, or now the community, i.e. like what people are able to do at DAOs. And you really need to figure out what that value add becomes. Like you as an investor aren't just the capital anymore, but you're in fact part of the company that you're investing in. And many of the founders that are looking for ideal partners or ideal capital are thinking that same way. It's like, you know, if I work with the churning group outside of capital, what could really be brought to the table? And, you know, we we anchor on distribution and being media investors and understanding content and understanding the best practices and both success and failures of Web2 and really try to bring that to the forefront and be as hands-on as possible with the companies we invest in. So that's kind of one way to really think about the everyone is an investor structure. It's if you are an institutional investor, you really kind of have to think about what else outside of capital you're really bringing to the table, because that's going to increasingly become more and more important as things become more competitive. The second angle that I think is really interesting is how do VCs think about DAOs? And there's a lot of questions to answer there, right? I think VCs can participate in DAOs, you know, and be active contributors, uh, similar to other individuals. The relationship and conversations that VCs have with DAOs are very different, right? It's no longer the company pitching you for investment, but you actually pitching the DAO to be approved as a member and what value you're really going to bring there. I think another question that is going to need to be answered is, you know, traditionally, VCs are taking LP money and investing and there usually often, I mean, not usually, always needs to be a plan on how to uh, liquidate that investment, right? Or, you know, what the exit starts to look like. And I think all of that is still being defined and DAOs run the gamut, right? You have collector DAOs, you have DAOs that want to buy sports teams, you have DAOs that want to buy the constitution, you have DAOs that are doing gaming guilds, and all of them are very different, right? They're all under that same subhead of a DAO, but they all have different values and practices and expectations for how they're going to work together. So I think that's another very interesting angle that's going to be unpacked over the next few months, which is, you know, the traditional way that VCs have thought about investing and participating is kind of turned upside down as it relates to DAOs. And 
what does that look like and what does participation look like for the companies that want to be involved? If you guys don't follow Jared, you have to follow at Jared Dicker. He's one of my favorite follows and not just because he's witty and funny and, and all. he's really insightful here. And, you know, as I think about a topic like NFTs, which is top of mind for a lot of people who are focused on Web3 right now, you had a tweet on November 22nd, different take. NFTs shouldn't be a strategy to build new audience from the bottom up and expect long-term fandom. They should be a tactic to add value down the funnel and give loyalty benefits to your most dedicated already existing fans. All right, explain. Yeah. So one, yes, the tweets are very much a stream of consciousness. And I was the first subscriber of Twitter Blue. And it's been amazing for me to get three or four seconds to second guess what goes out there. So hopefully the content's getting a little better. The main thinking behind that tweet was, I think NFTs are being used in a variety of ways right now. And it's highly experimental, which is great. Like when you have new technology and especially an entirely new strategy like digital ownership on the internet for the first time, you really need to kind of bang out all the kinks to really figure out what's going to stick both from you know a producer and a consumer lens. That was kind of me thinking more about the music space. I mean, I'm a massive music fan. I started my career in music, you know this, and I'm seeing so much focus on the music space in NFTs kind of building audiences, like a lot of these one-to-one NFTs where emerging artists or maybe blooming artists are launching an NFT song as a master and they're selling it as a one-to-one. And I have a lot of friends that you know are artists and musicians in this space, both big and small. And what I think is the real opportunity is kind of the inverse. I think music is really the top of funnel. It's the ability to build that fandom, get people to build a better connection with you as an artist and have the accessibility to listen and go deeper. And then as you go down that funnel and build deeper, deeper, deeper fandom and really find the 5-10% of people who are insanely loyal and basically commit their identity and you know their wallet to you, that's where you start to take advantage of what NFTs could do, where you have more exclusivity, you have the ability to have it be somewhat of like a social badge to get early ticketing and all of these other perks. And my concern is that if people are really starting out, especially as artists, and using NFTs as a one-to-one to kind of build up that audience, yes, financially, it seems great early on because you could be selling a song for 15 $20,000 worth of USD. But is that really fandom, right? And is that the right way to really start to build and accrue that audience? And it's just something that I think really needs to be fleshed out. And to your question about NFTs, I mean, NFTs, I think it's still massively understated the opportunity and the impact NFTs are going to have. For the past 30 years, we've been on an internet where we just presume that anything published ends up being public domain. And we saw that erupt with Napster in the music business and all of digital media kind of felt that as well, where you lost distribution, you lost ownership, you lost audience. And it was just a race to get content out there and monetize it as fast as possible. And now with NFTs, there's there's this provable digital ownership. And that's beneficial for people who are creating IP online and really want to manage what the value is and the cost and how that transacts, as well as giving consumers more of an opportunity to own and collect and be a part of something. And That's where I think NFTs really start to blow up in this idea of process. Like you as a creator or you putting anything original online, 
will want it to be an NFT because you want to have that proof of publish and you know the ability to manage that and grow value out of that. And that's where NFTs are going to evolve. And we're seeing that in the art market, of course, with everything with the PFPs and CryptoPunks and Board Ape Yacht Club. We're starting to see it go into music. I'm very bullish on the opportunity for NFTs to build big online businesses for art forms that never really were able to translate well to the internet. So you think of you know, street art or dancing, things that really kind of pack crowds and drive a lot of passion. But online, there's never really been, you know, functions or products that have really been able to serve that. And that's where I think there's a lot of untapped potential. So really kind of NFTs as this notion of the new way that we kind of manage economics on the internet, bringing new business models on the internet, and really starting to rethink the way that we create and put things online. Regular listeners of On The Tape have heard Meltem talk with Guy, Danny, and myself over the course of 2021. I've learned so much from Meltem. Her passion about crypto is the thing that I am drawn to. Her intelligence is the thing that keeps me here. Here's a clip from our conversation with Meltem. All right, we have one mission today to answer one question. What the fuck is the metaverse? The metaverse already exists. It's called the fucking internet. (laughs) We use it all day, every day. I live in the metaverse. I don't call it that. I call it cyberspace. Cyberspace has existed for decades. When I got onto the internet, I was in cyberspace. I had a handle. Actually, I had multiple handles. I had an AOL handle. I had a Usenet handle. I had an IRC handle. I had different personas. I had different people I was. I played a lot of video games. And in those games, I had handles and I had characters that I built. And even now, right, this idea of Web3 and working in cyberspace is actually something that's been around for ages. It's called mechanical turking. There are people all over the world who live in economies that are not dollar denominated who work online. They perform menial tasks online in online marketplaces. Amazon is one of the largest mechanical turking marketplaces. And people earn Amazon credits. There's actually huge business around turning Amazon credits that people are earning in Pakistan or in Malaysia or in other countries where, guess what? There is no freaking Amazon. So what are you going to do with your Amazon credits? Well, there are these marketplaces that got built in 2013 and 2014 where you could sell your Amazon credits for Bitcoin to Americans who wanted to buy things on Amazon. So again, I think it's sort of silly to me that people attach this new term to metaverse and all of a sudden we believe it's a new thing. It's not new. It's been here for decades and decades. We've been doing it for decades and decades. And I think the fundamental battle we're fighting is one player, which is the world's largest distribution platform, which is Facebook. Are they going to operate in this space? My view is no. Facebook is as incompetent at execution on new platforms as our government is at doing anything even remotely constructive and innovative. And the reason why is Facebook is an ossified large behemoth that has one focus, maximizing shareholder value. They will always do whatever they need to do to maximize shareholder value which is why I have placed all of my bets, all of my capital, all of my time, all of my energy, all of my avatars and my personas and my alts and my pseudonyms are in Web3 because the people who are building this future are people like me, people who are at this NFT NYC conference, people in the Bitcoin space. These are the original cyberspace pioneers 
who are building a different vision for the future and a vision where the platforms that we build on, the infrastructure that we're using is not owned by a monolithic zombie corporation that sees you as a profit center. Every quarter that you use Facebook, you generate $50 of revenue for Facebook. What if every quarter that you used these protocols and these tools and this infrastructure, you were actually getting paid as a value creator? So Packy, you create a ton of content. You wanted to monetize it. What did you do? You made a Substack so that you could monetize your insights. Me, Meltzer, I have a Twitter following. I spend a lot of time and energy putting my thoughts out there. How am I getting compensated? Well, I'm using that relationship I've built with my audience to invest in the infrastructure of cyberspace and to make all of this possible. When we think about some of these Web3 applications decentralized, will they disintermediate some of these large Web2 platforms that, let's be frank, Twitter, Snap, they may never reach a billion monthly active users? So I want to step back and talk about monetization. I think one of the really important things that people miss is people understand linear change very well. Facebook is a company that operates in cycles of linear change. So they can tweak things a bit, they can launch new products and feature, but the changes are linear. The changes we're talking about in the crypto space and what we're doing with this new model, they're exponential changes. And it's really difficult for the human mind to conceptualize exponential change because it's dramatic, it happens very quickly, and the impact is typically extremely disruptive. And that could happen in a variety of different ways. So when we talk about monetization, the thing that's being monetized in the existing online model is your attention, your data. You are the product. The service is free and you are the product. And again, a lot of people, if they're receiving utility from the service, maybe they don't mind that. But basically what we've architected over the last decade in building this crazy world of cryptocurrencies and these crazy ideas is a new model where instead of you being the product, you actually get to participate in the value creation and the value of the network that gets built. So for example, if I'm a user of, say, Showtime, which is a social platform that allows you to showcase and curate and discover NFT collections, I actually also get to participate in the wealth creation, the value creation of that network. Let's say I'm a really big fan of Packy, and I think Packy is going to be like a hugely important thought leader in the future and a tech philosopher, I could potentially buy Packy's social tokens. And as Packy's reputation grows, those will appreciate in value. And I can have a different type of experience with Packy where instead of just consuming his content and having a one-way relationship, there's more of a collaborative relationship between the creator, the audience, and the ability for people to co-create. That's like the beauty of collaboration. And that's really where I think so many corporations just are unable to actually communicate with their end audience and really understand what it is people want. So as we think about sort of this future and what it's going to look like, what I think starts to get really interesting, specifically about the currency component, is historically our ability to conceptualize value has been very limited. The issue is, for example, let's say we're talking about a transaction. If I have this iced coffee and I want to give Packy this iced coffee, I will give Packy this coffee. He will give me $10. This is New York after all. And then he'll have a coffee and I have $10. 
The issue in digital space and cyberspace is if I have a digital coffee and I copy it and I paste it to Packy, now we both have coffees. What cryptocurrencies resolve is that double spend problem. Historically, the way that's been resolved is me deleting the coffee from my database, Packy adding it to his database, and us reconciling and verifying that that's the truth. But there's really no way for us to do that on a global scale amongst billions of people. And so it starts to become really interesting now with cultural capital, right? And I believe culture is currency. Culture has always been currency. When you buy currencies, when you buy assets, you're buying into belief about culture. And so what's really interesting now is we are on the cusp of rebuilding this new sort of cyberspace experience where we can turn culture into currency. And the people who are doing this, it's DJs, it's artists, it's influencers, it's thought leaders, it's writers, it's museums, it's institutions of cultures. And then we add one layer on top of that. The other thing that's happening is historically institutions have had top-down hierarchy approach where institutions make taste. Institutions tell us what culture is. It starts at the top. It filters down through media, right? Media is an extension of this institutional hierarchy that informs our preferences and our perception of what we should value. And all of a sudden, that's gone out the window because in this new world of cyberspace, no one has credibility. And at the same time, everyone has credibility. And joining our OK Computer Collective, Cleo Abram, she is a Vox Media producer, and she does amazing videos, long form and short form, and she is an absolute star on TikTok. Here's a little clip from Cleo. I got to know Cleo, as most of us do these days over the web, I started seeing some tweets of hers on some topics that was really interested, but they weren't tweets. They weren't just 280 characters. They were these really animated videos. And I felt like, wow, this is unusual for Twitter. It's optimistic. It's kind of fun. And it's also informative. You know, one of the things that I always thought was interesting looking at your tweets is that on your Twitter bio, it says, I'm more fun on TikTok. (laughs) All right. What does that mean? Because like people like me find out, find new friends on Twitter, but you guys are having all this fun on TikTok. Why is that? It's true. I think that the formats that we talk in Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, of course, YouTube, they bring out different parts of our personality. On Twitter, I got to be honest, I'm like a little bit boring. I don't know how to describe this. I'm just not my full self. I don't know how to express myself really because I am usually, I'm a video producer, so I express myself visually. So Twitter has been a little bit hard for me to communicate in. TikTok just feels so easy. YouTube has always felt easy as well, but TikTok feels like... Yeah, but you know that that's probably most of the world who's on the web don't feel that TikTok is easy. It's one thing to go and do a dance that's kind of trending on TikTok. Oh, yeah, no, I never dance. Yeah, but but it's another thing to go and explain something that's kind of meaningful and do it in a way that's digestible. And let's just take a step back. You just said you're a video producer, but you're really a journalist, right? And you're really telling stories and you're explaining things. And so... You know, you came up in this world of journalism with all these tools at your disposal. Was there ever a day when you're thinking about being a journalist where it was just literally writing, you know what I mean, on the page? Or did you always conceive of journalism as this like kind of multimedium facet? I never not once thought about being a text journalist. I just it never crossed my mind when I was in high school and college. I never thought about it. I actually got to Vox um, as a business development person. I was really interested in making our TV shows and launching new products and helping Vox make make money. 
And I fell in love with the way that people there specifically made videos. They were these beautiful, clear, helpful explainers is what we call them. And that's the term that many people now use. And so I got into this particular kind of journalism that feels to me like when you're explaining something visually, it's sort of like doing a Rubik's cube. And I just love that. It's like, how can I make sure that you're getting different information from your ears than from your eyes? How can I make sure that I'm earning the amount of attention that you need to give me? Like a podcast, I love podcasts because I can be walking my dog or washing my dishes. And I have this experience of learning and being with people that I sort of parasocially consider my friends. But video demands a lot of your attention. So you really need to earn that. And for me, like using every bit of a video is the challenge that I got obsessed with. And then the thing that I do with that obsession is I do journalism. And so I have gotten into this profession that I now take very seriously and I believe in very strongly because I had this obsession with like specifically making videos. Yeah. Well, you seem to enjoy it too. And so let me ask you this. Do you find it hard <laughs> to pick the topics that you're going to enjoy? Because it does come out as you're doing these explainers, even in the short form, TikTok ones, there's a level of enthusiasm about the topic that is actually something that is very intoxicating for the viewer. And I assume that's very specific to how you do things because there's a, a lot of really dry explainers out there. There are. So I cover a lot of different topics. Like I have covered diamonds on Netflix, coding on Netflix as well. The question of whether or not I want kids as sort of a data-driven explainer on YouTube originals. So the set of topics that I cover is just very broad. But I always try and find a sort of technological or economics angle on it because I'm trying to find the underlying explanation that would help you understand the next time you see a headline about that topic. I'm not trying to break news. That's not the type of journalism that I do. And so usually if you can explain how something works technologically or the economic incentives of something, that's really going to help people understand what's going on the next time they see breaking news. And so the first thing that I look for is what is that explanation? What is the underlying system that I want to help you see? And then from there, the question is, okay, if that exists, is there a visual way to explain that? And sometimes the answer is no. And then I have to give it up. And that's hard. But if you and I are having coffee or drinks or something, and there's a time that I'm explaining something to you, and I need to draw something on a napkin in order for you to understand it, or I need to take out my phone and show you a clip and then be like, there, when he says that or something like that, that's what makes it a good video is I have something to show you. If I don't have something to show you, it probably would be better if someone else wrote a really beautiful article about it. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, this medium is an audio one. Like you said, it's a very intimate sort of thing. You're in my ear, right? If you're listening to a podcast, you could be doing anything, walking your dog, washing the dishes, whatever. If it needs to be demonstrated, then you're not doing a good job. You know, I really enjoy um, podcasts for information, for debate, for entertainment. But I, I do agree as you're speaking in your videos, there's just really simple diagrams. It makes it very digestible. And I think that's really important here. We're really excited to have you come on after you've done one of either your long or short form ones. And you're like, this intersects with what you guys have been talking about here. And let's break that down. I think that'll be fun. I mean, again, 
None of us are breaking any news here. We're just trying to help decode, demystify a little bit for the audience. Let's talk about that one. You did a long form one. It was probably a few months ago. It was, do I want kids? You said it was data driven. Explain that to me because it was on Vox's YouTube channel. It's had 1.3 million views in just a few months here. What resonated about that video? What was the reason that you did it? And what did you learn from that? That was such a wonderful piece to make because I got to make it in such a personal way. I interviewed my mom about her decision to have kids and the impact that it had. And I was able to ask some questions that were really hard and really complicated. And the way that I got into that, the sort of, because I'm an explainer journalist, the first thing that I do is find out, you know, where's the study? Where's the data? What can I look at that will help me understand what's going on here? Even for a question as personal as, do I want kids? So some of the questions that I had about that were, one, are parents really happier than non-parents? That's a cultural thing that I'll just speak for myself, that I believe. The data doesn't really seem to show that that's true. What is the impact of having kids on male and female spouses' Uh, earnings and financial life. Um, That data is mostly to do with heterosexual couples in the United States. And it shows that there really is a big difference between the impact, the, the earnings hit that women take versus the earnings hit that men take still. And then finally, what are the ways in which we could just make it easier to make this decision for people who want kids? How can we make it easier to be a parent in the US? And there's a lot of data on the way in which other countries handle this, on the way in which the US supports or doesn't support parents. But one of the most interesting is the percentage of a woman's median earnings that she spends on childcare among different countries. And it differs how countries get that number down. Um, it might be subsidizing childcare, it might be child tax credits, it might be all kinds of things. But in the US, that share is very, very high. And so when I looked at all of that data together, I thought the story is about, wow, this is a really hard, big choice. And at the same time, I talk to my mom. And at the end of the episode, I felt the need to say to her, like, I really want the relationship with a kid that you and I had when I was growing up and still. And so like, it is interesting as an explainer to see everything that you can learn from data and everything that you can't and everything that is just really like an emotional conversation between me and my mom. So that I think was a really wonderful story to tell as a journalist, because I got to go through all of that data. And then I got to say, like, there's some part of this that I just can't explain to you with data. I'm going to need to talk to you like with my mom. A lot of what we're going to spend time on is this intersection between, let's say, Web 2 and Web 3 on OK Computer. And again, you are digitally, socially native as an individual, personally, but then also professionally here. And when you talk about using these platforms for your profession, they've generally been very extractive, if you think about it. And so you're really the product. You creating content on those platforms, the more engagement it gets is the higher ad rates that they can get for ads that they're putting in and around. How do you think about that going forward as a journalist? Because you know part of the ethos of Web3 is that the creators get to own, right? And are you thinking about some of that and how will it change what you're doing? So I think there are two big buckets here. One bucket is the technology. What can you do with the actual technology being developed for Web3? Usually that means blockchain. And the second category is what are the values that are becoming more and more important now, whether or not they have to do with that technology? So just to start with that second one, because I think it's the easier one, I think that the 
fracturing of big media companies, both in terms of where people get their information, more and more people get their information from individual creators as a percentage of what they pay attention to. I think that's really exciting for journalists. I think that's a really great thing for my profession and has been positioned as though it's bad. I think the way in which many of my peers have been going off onto Substack and making significantly more money for some of them than they were making before means that they have a direct relationship with their audience and their audience is telling them, we find your work valuable, we're going to continue paying you for that work. That's an incredibly powerful position to be in as a journalist and for a profession that is for most people, not very well paid. I, I think that's a really exciting opportunity. That doesn't exist. That subscription model doesn't exist so much in video yet, but I'd like to see it. I mean, you can cobble together like a really successful Patreon mixed with merch, mixed with, you know, a YouTube membership, something like that. But it hasn't quite sort of become a trend in the same way as Substack has sort of hit the public conscious. I think the more we can support individual journalism, the better, because I think one of the big problems is like missing out on having an editor, missing out on having collaborators. I will say the more and more I do independent work, the more I find that it's very, very easy to find peers that will help you and make your work better. But there is an infrastructure that media companies typically had to do investigative work, to do the type of longer running work that results in really high quality journalism that I would worry is missing from some of the individual models. Then there's a whole separate conversation about how a creator can use Web3 technology Technology. I haven't really started doing any of that yet, but I'm very, very interested in like, what would it look like for an individual creator to have a DAO? Like, what would you vote on? How would that function? A lot of people are doing tokens. I don't, I don't have a Clio token yet. It's funny because, you know, the whole notion of Web3, the, the fact that it needs to be attached to a distributed ledger, a blockchain or something like that, you know, I'm not there yet because I, I think that some of the first stages are is kind of decentralizing some of these processes. And, you know, you and I have talked offline about this, especially in journalism. I, I mean, there's this tremendous distrust of some of these large media organizations. And that really just seems to be polarized. You know, like for instance, if I'm on this side, I'm just, I buy into what's being said here. I think it's going to be really hard for a lot of journalists to go their own route. I mean, just for the same reason, it, it, just the resources that it takes and, and, you know, finding an audience and, and monetizing that audience in a way, I think it's going to be really hard. And this is the history of media and tech. It's like bundle, unbundle, bundle, unbundle, you know, and I think we're in a massive unbundling right now, but ultimately think about the New York Times and the Washington Post. The last five years has just actually reoriented the way that they think about their businesses and, and paywalls and, and the like. And, and I think it probably stays that way. So you have this one force on one side and then you have this mass exodus on the other side. It'll be interesting if we see a lot of those individual journalists come back as the tides turn a little bit. I think we might. I think it's very hard, as you said, to make it on your own. I will say that I'm excited to have more options. I just think that's a net positive. And the idea that you can, if you want, and if you have the ability to take that on, that you can make an audience that will pay you for your work directly, like that's a much more powerful position to be in. So obviously that's just really, really hard. And obviously I think that a lot of that work 
that is, you know, longer term and maybe not as obviously sponsorable, things like that. Let's be honest, that'll continue to be done at big media companies because they have the resources and they're really, really good at it. So I don't worry about them. I don't think this is a story about like the dissolution of any big media legacy company. Um, in fact, I think that many of their subscription models are doing, I mean, obviously the New York Times incredibly well. I think it's a story about more opportunities for journalists. And I'm really, really excited about that. I'm really excited to have Sally Shin join us and our little collective here at OK Computer. Sally worked for years as CNBC, very focused on tech as a producer. Sally recently joined Steve Stout at United Masters, and they are going to be focused on Web3 and the intersection of music and creators. And I'm really excited to speak with Sally. Sally Shin, dear friend, Chief Strategy Officer at United Masters, but I got to know you, Sally, at CNBC, where you started your illustrious career. You spent a long time there as a producer. You and I spent a lot of time together when you went out to San Francisco, I think in 2017, to help launch their One Market, which was really their studio down in the market era, really focused on tech. You did an amazing job building out a lot of new tech coverage and you're a phenomenal networker and you really understand the inner workings of tech from an investment standpoint to entrepreneurial. You did a stint at NBC News helping to coordinate their tech business and media coverage. And now you've crossed the Rubicon. You are an operator, as they say, Sally, welcome to OK Computer. We're really happy to have you as a contributor of our new project here. This is exciting. And just so you know, I started as an intern at CNBC and I worked for Guy. Oh my goodness. So I, I can't, I it can't goes imagine. It way back. <laughs> well, this is going to be really funny. And I think, as you know, Guy is going to be popping onto OK Computer here and there. He's going to be our OK Boomer, our Luddite, and we're going to actually have to drop some tech oh, knowledge God. on him. And it, could, <laughs> it could be as simple as him just to how to log on to the podcast. But I will tell you, and, and Amanda would tell you, is that Guy has been podcasting now for one year. And we, we thought literally that was going to be one of our biggest challenges to get him on a mic each week doing this sort of thing. But all right, Sally, welcome. So you started as an intern, but you had this like, great career and you covered tech, I think, in the back half of it almost exclusively. Tell us a little bit about that and how you kind of made the shift to NBC News and how you got to where you are at United Masters. Yeah, I've always looked and seeked in industries where there was a paradigm shift. So I, when I started in journalism, I actually wanted to be a war correspondent. And then during college, it was the financial crisis. So I had prior worked at CNN for Anderson Cooper. I was at MSNBC interning. And then I decided to take a job at CNBC and realized the enormous impact that the network had in the coverage during the financial crisis. And as I spent more time. And when I started to see the Facebooks of the world, the Twitters of the world popping up, I really wanted to make that trip and that journey to San Francisco. And before that, really was brainstorming with Todd Bonin, who's the executive producer at Squawk on the Street, about developing an audience outside of our core Wall Street, East Coast audience. And then we launched Squawk Alley a few years ago, which, which now is rebranded as TechCheck. And it was really a fascinating experience because we were covering so much of the public markets. And this was the real, you know, first foray into CNBC covering private markets in a more smart way. And it was really the the players and, and the people that made the story so much more interesting. You, you now have 
you know, at the time, someone who was who had dropped out of college in their 20s, starting companies that were turning into multi-billion dollar companies, and, you know, how they were driven and how the ethos of San Francisco and Silicon Valley really was such a fascinating place to be. You know, a lot of the coverage we focused on maybe some that seemed a little bit more insider for our CNBC audience that really became the center and core piece of it. So when I moved in 2017, it was right around when the Uber story was breaking with Travis Kalanick and, and Bill Gurley and um, everything else you know there. And I had one of our reporters uh, chase that story the same way that some of our competitors at the Times and the Wall Street Journal did. It seems to me that there used to be this very antagonistic sort of approach to covering tech, right? And so it's not like you went out to make friends out there. You made actually the, the case of how you could be trusted. We could help tell these stories a bit better. And then at least those on the kind of more antagonistic sort of situations. And at that time, I think the 2017 period with Kalanick and Uber and Theranos, it just seemed to be there was a moment there. And so I think there was a way to cover it intelligently and take some lessons from it. And I think a lot of investors in the private markets probably did a little bit. And the other thing I'd just say about the coverage of private companies, the way you did on Squawk Alley and the way that we had in Fast Money, you know, I, I started introducing a lot of voices that were VCs in my network or operators, founders in the private markets. And the angle was that we were spending so much time covering the same 25 tech stocks every day that let's talk about the people that are setting out to disintermediate these companies. And if I'm an investor in public markets, I want to hear those stories. I want to understand those roadmaps and understand how the companies, the stocks that I own have the potential to be disrupted in the future. Yeah. And also just going back to the coverage Part, I think a lot of people view coverage right now as antagonistic. I would say during the early years of Uber was more, I would say, discipline. As these companies were coming up, everybody was enamored by the growth of these companies and these entrepreneurs that had different profiles. And then we started to dig in a little bit more at these companies and whether it be culture or financials. All right. So then there was a dinner about two years ago, our friend Adam Singolda. Oh, yeah. Adam Singolda. It was my dinner. Adam Singolda shows up and he says, listen, I'm going to bring, I think he said my like most famous friend to dinner and you guys are going to love him. (laughs) And so Adam rolls up with a guy named Steve Stout. So Steve shows up takes a seat at eh, kind of near the head of the table. He might have like hip checked me out of there, that sort of thing. And all of a sudden starts holding court. The guy is mesmerizing, right? And it's not just mesmerizing because he's funny or he's got this sort of presence or whatever. He's smart as hell. And every conversation turned into kind of a really intelligent debate about something that was just on the tip of whoever's tongue. And he was very kind of inclusive and everything like that. So you and I were immediately enamored with him. So flash forward a year and change later, You are working, you are the chief strategy officer at Steve's company, United Masters. What is United Masters? How did you get there? And why is this mission important to you? Yeah, so United Masters is trying to disrupt the record label industry. And there's so many DIY artists today. So artists that are building, creating music and getting their music out there and also trying to monetize that craft. In the most simplest form, United Masters is there to help distribute music. So if you are Dan Nathan, have a band, Dan Nathan's band, and you wanted to get it up to any of the DSPs, Spotify, YouTube, TikTok, you need an intermediary like us. So you come to United Masters and get your song distributed. And then we help 
provide all the different services that a record label could, but at scale with a subscription service. So with a $60 a year, we help you with sync placements, playlisting. We actually did a big contest right now where United Masters users can submit their songs to be placed into a Matrix promo. And we just announced the winner. We work with the NBA. So if you look at NBA social, you'll see that the music is coming from United Masters artists and they're tagged in those posts. So those are huge discovery tools. What was interesting and piqued my interest with United Masters really is the shift in music is happening in front of our eyes. Back in the day, discovery from music happened in two forms, radio and TRL from MTV. So if you didn't get your songs on those two platforms, it was really hard to get your song out there. Now, the number one discovery place is TikTok. People find and listen to music on TikTok. Social media has become such a huge tool. So where record labels used to control those flow, now you are an entrepreneur in itself. So we think about it as what Shopify is trying to do for D2C brands, we're trying to do for independent artists. The key thing with United Masters also is that all the artists own the master rights to their songs. And that's a, really the key. So they really have the control of their creativity. 2021, this was the year you know, where the creator economy it took hold and people really starting to embrace this model in, in a big, big way. And I think it's interesting, and this is obviously merging into some of the kind of ethos of Web3, if you will. And I think that's probably what happens in 2022 is connecting those models. You're not exactly out there to disrupt the Web2 models of discovery, which might be the streaming services and, and social media. You're actually enabling the creators to better monetize you're really disrupting the record label model. And, you know, there was a tweet of Chris Dixon of uh, Andreessen Horowitz, the, their crypto fund that he had a week and a half ago that caught my eye. It said, yet only 15,000 of the 8 million Spotify users make $50,000 a year before expenses. Outside of superstars, musicians don't make much money from the internet. Now, that was part of a thread, and I'm sure you saw that, and it was pretty fascinating. So tell us a little bit about that. I mean, are the the Web2 distribution platforms, like you said, they're still going to be important as far as discovery. They don't see you as a threat. If anything, you are onboarding lots of creators and getting their brands and their art ready for the prime time so they can better monetize on their platforms. Yeah, I mean, this day and age, as an artist, as a creator in that space, it's incredibly hard to sustain a business for streaming alone. And so you really need to start building your influence, your cultural influence, and that's our, our, our key motto. So whether it be tapping into brands or building your fan base, and that's really where I think Web3 plays a big role in music, is building a community around your fan base. So we, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, announced a partnership with Coinbase. So we're allowing our artists to get paid in crypto. That is probably phase one of our you know, foray into Web3. But where we see opportunity is through different NFTs or where you can actually build a community around your artists. So giving them different access, different off-chain accesses like hey, if you own this NFT from our artist, Toby, then you get to hear a song released you know, a week before everybody else, or maybe concert tickets that are being sold before, you know, for the mass, or you have special merch that you have access to, all the way to, you know, if you own a this exclusive NFT, then you have lifetime backstage passes. I don't know, like, there's so many things happening in that music space. 
And then on the ownership and the IP rights side, you know, this is something that has always been a hurdle for the music industry is who owns the rights to your songs. And being able to write those contracts on the blockchain can help a lot of solve a lot of those problems. I would say this is very early stage and there's a lot of work to do. The complexities around those rights holders is, you know, we're just at the at the beginning. Well, Sally, it was great to have this conversation. It was great for our listener to get to know a little bit about your background, what you're doing now. I love your mission at United Masters. I'm a huge fan. Obviously, I'm a huge music fan, so I'm going to be watching very closely. I'm sure there are going to be no shortage of superstars that come out of your platform there. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for being a part of OK Computer. And I really, I'm so excited to have you be um, a contributor and hear of all the amazing things you're going to be doing. And thank you, Dan. I've known you for probably 13 or so years now. And, you know, you guys have an incredible mission and these conversations and we've got a great cast. So I'm excited to be part of it. I got to thank Amanda Diaz, our producer who scoured through all the conversations I've had with all of those co-hosts of OK Computer Collective. We hope you got a good sense for the personalities and the expertise of the people who are going to be joining us every week, dropping in the podcast stores on Wednesdays here, people. So please subscribe to it in the podcast stores. Follow us on Twitter at OK Computer Pod, and we look forward to hearing your feedback. Thanks for joining us. 